All right, let's go 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We've been hanging out in chapter 15 for four weeks now. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If you uh, don't have a Bible, we'll have the text up on the screens behind me in just a little bit. Uh, we also have some physical Bibles scattered around the room in the little racks underneath the seats. If you don't own a Bible, we would invite you to take that physical one home. Uh, the reason for that is incredibly simple. We believe that God uses his word for all kinds of important things, but chief among those important things is that he uses it to reveal himself to his people. Um, there's all kinds of good, valuable things that he's given us the scriptures for, but man, to know God is, is the massive one. And so we want you to know him. We want everything in and about your life to be filtered through and defined by that knowing of him. And the, the scriptures, his word, or what he uses to, to do that in your heart and life, then like it just kind of common sense to be putting Bibles in people's hands and coming up with creative ways for people to be reading them. And so if you don't have one, take that one, and I'll call it the best part of my day. First um, Corinthians chapter 15. Uh, we have made it now to uh, week 28 of our effort to kind of slowly walk through the letter that we call First Corinthians. It's a letter written by the Apostle Paul to a church in the Greek city of Corinth. It was written about 53 to 55 AD, if you're really interested in that kind of stuff. Uh, the church is young. The church is super bright. The church is super talented. And what's really kind of a problem is they kind of know it, all right? And so they're also kind of super arrogant, all right? They're, there's a puffed up chest and, a, and an inflated ego here, uh, but Paul loves them. He wants incredible good for them, and so he continues to engage them despite their nonsense, all right? And so that's kind of the tone of the letter. Paul is kind of the older guy who helped start the church and wants good for them, and he's watching these nonsense, you know, these, these people who are just kind of phoning it in here, and he wants them to fix some things, but in a kind of a pastoral way. He's not just going to rant and rave. He's going to kind of lead them to where they need to be. So there are moments, there are moments where the kid gloves just come completely off, and Paul kind of drops the the friendly tone, and he, he tells them in no uncertain terms, hey, you're not as awesome as you think you are. You're not as smart as you think you are. But, but the steady burn of this letter, the kind of the over uh, week after week after week plotting that we've seen in this letter is that Paul's overarching theme is to continually point the Corinthians back to the reality that God's kingdom is intentionally upside down from every other kingdom on the table. They don't do the same thing. They don't value the same thing. They don't celebrate the same thing. They're different. God's kingdom values and the things it celebrates doesn't, doesn't look anything at all like what every other kingdom offers. And that includes, it includes all the many kingdoms floating around in Corinth, and that definitely includes all the many kingdoms floating around in our own culture, right? There have been a number of occasions throughout this letter now that God's otherworldly kingdom has come into direct conflict with the with the culture in the world that we find ourselves living in. Have you noticed that yet? Has it come up? Is that some accident? Probably not, right? It's, it's not some oversight on, on God's part to, you know, to fail to come up with a system that would be perfectly attracted to those hanging out in first century Corinth and those hanging out in 21st century Nashua. It's upside down by design. In fact, God seems to have intentionally built out his kingdom in such a way as to make it difficult for those who love other kingdoms to ever enter his. It's upside down by design. A heart must be changed. Must is the word. Must be changed to love him and love what he loves before the kingdom will ever make any sense to those outside of it. But let's be honest, even after that, 
there's some moments that it's still hard to, to wrap our heads around, right? There's, there's some lingering loves in our hearts for those kingdoms we come out of. And there's some moments when sometimes it's hard to cling instead to God's kingdom. It's, so the question that we've been training ourselves, obviously, to, to ask whenever we find ourselves in these moments is, oh, okay, but, but is it beautiful, Right? Is it beautiful? Yes, I'm conflicted right now. I'm not sure I want to buy all the way into it yet, but, but is what God is promising actually good? Is it, is it true? Does it have eternal value in a world that's quickly fading away? And if we can answer yes to, to those specific questions, well, then we can deal with the dissonance for a moment, right? It, it, we, can, we can handle that because, because we know that that. that that God is something much, much better in store for us than what we can make sense of right now. And so, and so we, instead of a wall, we treat it like a hurdle. And we jump the hurdle and we keep running because we trust that God is good and we trust that he's capable and we trust that he's willing. So we have slowly but surely made our way throughout this letter and we spent the last few weeks now digging deeply into Paul's kind of last main category of subjects that he wants to really get into with the Corinthian church. And, and so this last of the four subjects is the reality and the implications of Jesus's resurrection. Because Jesus was raised bodily, because he both defeated and is actively defeating death, um, those that belong to Jesus will one day also be raised with him. That's what Paul's kind of unfolded for us over the last three weeks. And because of that reality, Everything about the way we see the world and think about the world has changed, right? And it has to. If you move the goalposts, if you move the finish line, the rules of the game have to change with it. It's not the same game anymore. We're playing a different thing. And so for the follower of Jesus, the level of our eyes has shifted from temporary victories now to eternal victories. We value different things, we chase different things, we're hoping to land on different things. And so we don't have to focus our attention anymore and our energy anymore on making sure we get ours today. We instead, we instead joyfully chase after things that will still matter 10,000 years from now. The resurrection changes the way we think. It changes the way we live. It changes the posture of our homes. It changes what we pursue at work and play. And it definitely changes how we define and order ourselves as a church. The resurrection changes everything. Changes everything. Last week, Paul began unpacking the question of what our resurrection bodies will actually look like. And, and just to be honest, we don't have a lot of answers. And it seems that neither really does Paul, right? And so uh, we, just, we just don't know yet because that day hasn't gotten here. We'll have more answers when Jesus finally comes back. And, and so for, for a handful of people in the Corinthian church, we talked about this last week, for a handful of people in the Corinthian church, that mystery was a stumbling block to them. They couldn't make sense of, of how all the pieces fit together and how all the, all the intricate details might actually play out. And so it caused them to just kind of reject the idea of the resurrection wholesale. It caused them to just reject it altogether. And so Paul made it clear to them that even without knowing all of the details, that even when we personally can't figure out and wrap our heads around every understanding everything that God is doing, that doesn't for one second mean that God doesn't understand. He's still got it. That doesn't for one second mean that God fails to understand all the little intricacies. We can trust that he is both good and that he is perfectly capable of doing exactly what he's promised to do. 
And to prove that, Paul tells the Corinthians to just start looking around. Remember that? Everything in creation tells the story of God's creativity, and it tells the story of God's power, and it tells the story of God's design. The one who dreamt up and spoke animals and angels and solar systems into existence is not going to struggle when it comes time for him to recreate a few things. He's got it. Paul's not quite ready yet to lay down his argument here. He wants to, to weave a couple of new implications into the mix. And so let's pick up where we left off last week in verse 50. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting in verse 50. Paul says this, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Let's call a time out there. All right, so last week, Paul introduced the teaching that what goes into the ground will be changed. You can count on it. What is sown is perishable, but it will be raised imperishable, right? Sown in dishonor, sown in weakness, but raised in glory and power. But here in verse 50, Paul introduces the logic that what goes into the ground must necessarily be changed. There's a difference there. There's a, there's a shift from will be changed to has to be changed, must be changed. It has to be changed or, or else it's actually unfit for an eternal reality in God's kingdom. There are a few different ways that the term kingdom of God is used in the New Testament. And we can you know, flesh some of those out, but here it's, it's being used in what's called the consummate sense, if you're into that kind of thing, meaning the finally realized and forever presence of the king who reigns. That's what it's talking about, Paul, here, when he says the, the kingdom of God, the presence of the king forever. Paul says our weak, sin-riddled, flesh-and-blood bodies cannot spend eternity next to an infinitely holy creator. They must be changed on a fundamental level in order to be near him. And, and so the thing that, according to Corinthian logic last week, could not happen is precisely the thing that not only must happen, but God has promised to happen, has had planned to happen from before the foundation of the world. See, undoing what went wrong in the garden also means undoing everything that followed. When you eat of it, you shall surely die. That's got to be undone too. Death and decay must be undone, and God fully intends to undo them. And so when Jesus shows up, all those who have fallen asleep will rise anew with glorified bodies, ready to spend eternity with the one who has victoriously rolled back everything that went wrong. Rolled back every single bit of the Edenic curse. But if you're paying attention, there's a hole in the logic. Have you caught it yet? Acknowledging that, you know, obviously, we don't know when Jesus will come back. I mean, unless you've got some information I don't have. Every passing day, every single passing day, adds more and more people into Christ's kingdom who have fallen asleep. But every single passing day also adds more and more kingdom into God's kingdom, uh, into Christ's kingdom who have not fallen asleep yet. We've got a bunch of alive folks here, too. You alive? I think I'm alive. Probably, who knows, maybe might be alive when Jesus comes back. Even if I'm not and you're not, my kids might be or their kids. Like somebody's going to be alive when Jesus comes back. 
right? What happens to them? What happens to them? It's like, if the dead folk all get new bodies, what about the ones that aren't dead yet? You know? Paul's ahead of you. Paul knows. Look at verse 51. Behold, exclamation point, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. 52. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For the perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. Alright, so Paul says, hey, pay attention now. I'm going to reveal some things to you. I'm going to explain a mystery to you. And the word mystery here, it's, it's used differently in the Bible than what we... Uh, I think almost always use it in our own culture. For us, a mystery is something that's really, really difficult to understand or maybe even impossible to understand. I don't know, it's just a mystery, right? But in, in the, the writings of the Bible, especially Paul's writings, a mystery is not something that's unknowable. A mystery is something that was previously hidden but is now being revealed. It's now being unfolded for everyone to pay attention to and glory at. Cards that were before held close to the chest, are now laid on the table for everybody to see. So Paul takes up the next logical question. If glorified, resurrected bodies are necessary for the coming kingdom, what about those who haven't died yet? Paul takes up a logical question, and he answers it here with an apostolic insight. A mystery now revealed. He proclaims something that was not known until he proclaimed it. He says, not everyone will fall asleep, but we will all be changed. Some, whoever those some are, some of God's people will see Jesus return before they die, period. And this verse, verse 51, man, it is frequently, and I mean frequently, attacked by those who don't like Paul and his message. Who don't think that Paul ought to be accounted as an apostle. The point, uh, they point to this verse and argue that Paul believed that, Jesus, that he himself would still be alive when Jesus returned. And, and obviously that didn't happen, so Paul must not know what he's talking about, right? Apparently Paul's just a charlatan and deceiving everybody. It's time to dismiss Paul and dismiss everything Paul ever taught. And that sounds like an overreaction. I know it does, but it's because it is. But it's also exactly how the argument often plays out. Paul thought that he would still be alive when Jesus came back, and so that didn't happen, so Paul must be wrong. And if Paul's wrong about that, we can't trust him for anything. So there's an important question to ask. Are the people making that argument right? Is Paul wrong in predicting the imminent return of Jesus here? Well, there's certainly a way of reading that sentence this way to make it say that. I mean, it's possible, but at the same time, it doesn't have to say that. It can say that, but it doesn't have to say that. It makes equal sense, just as much sense, to say that Paul is speaking of the universal church here. That some of us, in the family of God, will not see death before Jesus' return. And to be clear, I think Paul wanted Jesus to come back as soon as possible. Like, like anybody doubt that? To live is Christ, to die is gain, right? Paul's not sitting around hoping that Jesus will tarry for a little bit longer because he's got some stuff to do. Paul wanted 
Jesus to come back as soon as possible, surely. But, but to dismiss Paul as an apostle and to dismiss the full corpus of his teaching simply because it's possible to read this one verse in an uncharitable way, like, that probably ought to teach us more about the, the agenda of those doing the accusing and the arguing, right? Maybe they went into the, the thing looking for a reason to dismiss Paul. Whatever Paul thinks the timeline is here, I think he wants Jesus to come soon, and he knows that someone's going to get to see it play out with real, still broken eyes. And he's got a word for him. Whatever the case, Paul just argued that even those who have not died yet still, and the word is must, be given glorified bodies when Jesus comes back in order for them to be fit for eternity with God. So how did that happen? What, what does that process look like? You got some questions? Because I probably have some questions. Like, is there a row of changing rooms right outside the pearly gates? <laughs> Do I have to worry about being given the wrong size glorified body? I'm a hard fit, you know. Sometimes I use a large, sometimes an extra large. It just depends on the brand. Is there a zipper? Look at verse 52 again. What does it say? In a moment... In the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. So that word moment there is the Greek word atomos, all right? It's obviously where we get our English word atom from. Atomos is the smallest possible division of something, all right? That's that, what that Greek word actually means. And so the reason why atoms are called atoms is because when we discovered them, we thought that that was the smallest possible way you could divide out material, Obviously, we've come to learn since then that even atoms have building blocks, but the word just kind of stuck because we already used it, all right? And so that, that's what that word means, the smallest possible division of something. And so Paul uses the word atomos here when speaking of time. And so the smallest possible division of time. We're not, we're not talking about seconds here. We're talking about fractions of seconds. And he doubles down by following that up by, by saying, in the twinkling of an eye, we shall all be changed. We shall all be changed. So, so what does that tell us? Well, I think it definitely tells us that this isn't some long, drawn-out event. It seems to be practically instantaneous. At the sound of a trumpet, Jesus will appear and we will be changed. Now, is, is this the only text that informs our understanding of this moment? Not even close. Um, there's a couple other places that Paul has written about this. In another place, Paul uh, wrote in 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17. There, Paul kind of spells out some more structure and order for this moment. He says there, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. And so in his letter to the Thessalonians, Paul gives the, the first one group and then the next group kind of kind of ordering of things, kind of vibe there. Uh, the dead in Christ will rise first, but then right on their heels, it seems, those who haven't died yet. And so, and so both of these texts influence and bear weight upon our understanding of, of this moment, right? But in the, in the Corinthians passage, Paul points, uh, Paul's point, Paul's purpose is to show that there's an immediacy to what's happening here. It's not some... However long event, it's, it's Jesus comes back and boom, it's over. 
Rather than getting bogged down into all the specific actions and orderings, Paul's point is to show that one day Jesus will show up and every single one of the dominoes that he set up to fall is going to fall exactly like he wanted it to. Jesus comes back and it's go time. Things start happening and all of his purposes will be fulfilled. And that's emphasized even more here in the, the, the idea of a trumpet. Jim Dempsey's favorite Bible verse. There's coming a day. There's coming a day when all the trumpeteers in the world will be vindicated as having picked the most important instrument. But this moment is not a trumpet recital. It's not a concert. It's a mustering. It's a marshalling summons to report when the trumpet sounds and the sky rolls back with a sudden crack, there will be no more opportunity to kind of feel some things out and then make a decision. It's over. The entire cosmos will get to watch those that belong to Christ be raised to spend eternity with him and those that do not belong to Christ be raised to be judged by him. It's going to be a busy day. It's going to be a really busy day, but that's not all that's going on. What else is going on? Look at verse 54. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says when. He says when. In other words, when the day finally gets here, when Jesus finally shows up like he said he was going to show up, that's the day when we're finally going to get a bunch of other promises fulfilled too. Paul smashes two quotes together. The first from Isaiah 25, 8. The second from Hosea 13, 14. Both of them, Paul quotes from the Septuagint translation of the, of the Old Testament rather than the Hebrew uh, translation or the Hebrew scriptures. Uh, the Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. But, but both of those verses he chose, both of those quotes, <laughs> involve the death of death itself. Like death is personified in both of those texts. It's, it's, given, it's given human characteristics in a name. In the Isaiah text, Paul says, death is swallowed up in victory. That victory is the forever kind. There ain't no sequel here. You've watched the movie a hundred times, right? The bad guy isn't really dead. And so they come back stronger than before. You've seen that movie, right? There ain't no sequel here. It's over. Completely over. When Jesus comes back, death will not exist anymore because it will be swallowed up. It will be sucked in. It will be consumed in its entirety, of, in the entirety of its fullness. It will be gone, listen, forever. And the period goes there. Forever. One commentator, an old German Lutheran guy named Richard Linsky, he described it this way. It says, death is not merely destroyed so that it cannot do further harm while all the harm which it has wrought on God's chi- uh, children remains. The tornado is not merely checked so that no additional homes are wrecked while those who were wrecked still lie in ruin. No, death and all of its apparent victories are undone for God's children. What looks like a victory for death and like a defeat for us when our bodies die and decay shall be utterly reversed so that death dies in absolute defeat and our bodies live again in absolute victory. Church family, the death of death itself 
It will be full and it will be final. Which causes Paul then to quote Hosea. He says, hey, death, where's that sting I heard about? I thought you were supposed to have some kind of stinger on you. Where's it at? It's a taunt. It's a taunt. He quotes Hosea in order to mock the personification of death. Do you have the audacity to do that? I'm not sure I have the audacity to do that. How does Paul get it? When it comes in the next line, Paul kind of answers his own question. Where is death sting? What does verse 56 say? The sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the what? Church, death has a stinger. It's a big one. It's a big one. Sin. It pricks, it injures, it causes pain. But listen, where sin has been dealt with, where sin has been taken away and removed, that stinger is yanked out. That stinger is yanked out. It cannot hurt you anymore. For the non-Christian, the stinger is strengthened by the law. It's empowered by the law. We learned this reality when we studied Romans together a couple of years ago, that that the law was given in order to formalize and increase the heinousness of our sin. And so for the sinner, a posture of rebellion against God is turned into a blatant trespass because of the law. We know the law and we broke the law, all right? And so without Jesus, as those under the law, we have every reason to fear the sting of death. It's gonna hurt. It's going to cause all kinds of pain. It's the good and right punishment for our sin. But the death of a perfectly righteous Jesus in our place changes the game. Forever changes the game. In another place in Galatians 4, Paul says that Jesus was born under the law to redeem those who were under the law. Here in verse 57, Paul says, Thanks be to God who gives victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. For the Christian, we no longer need to fear death. Why? Because it's impotent on an eternal scale. Completely powerless. It's nothing more than a temporary inconvenience on our way to a happily ever after on an eternal reality. It's a short time out from our bodies as we wait for Jesus to roll it all back and give us something better, shinier. So listen, if, if, you're, if you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus yet, like, what are you waiting for? Like, seriously, what are you waiting for? And I, I get it. Jesus demands everything from you, right? His call is for you to repent of your sin and submit to his lordship in every possible corner of your heart and life. And that's a big ask. I get it. That's, that, that's a really, really big ask. But last time I checked, what he promises to give you in return is infinitely bigger. It's way bigger. He takes your sin. And he takes the death that it, that it rightfully earns. And in exchange, Jesus gives you his own righteousness and life with him forever. Sounds like a better option. Jesus puts on flesh and dwelt among us. He lived the sinless life that neither you nor I am capable of living. He died on the cross as an innocent substitute to make full and final payment for your sin. He was raised again from the dead as a vindication of his perfect and sufficient righteousness. And now he calls on you in this moment to respond to him in repentance and faith, to turn away from your sin and to turn to him as Savior and Lord. And listen, you can do that this morning. 
In a moment, I'm going to pray and we're going to sing. That's a time for us to set aside, to, to respond to God's word. And that's, that's, a good, that's a good response. I'd love to be helpful to you. I'll be down front if you want somebody to talk to. But what if you're here this morning and you're, not a, and you're already a follower of Jesus? What if you've been a Christian for a while? How do, how do we respond? Well, we've got one more verse to look at. Verse 58. Paul says, Therefore, my beloved brothers. All right, let's call time out there. So he uses the word therefore. So what's the therefore, therefore? In, in light of uh, everything that Paul has just like, kind of rolled out for the last chapter now concerning the resurrection, because Jesus was raised as the first fruits of our own resurrection, because uh, uh, the, the future resurrection changes everything about how we live and think today in this world, because we can trust that, that God is capable of remaking us and you and everything around us with greater glory than we can possibly imagine. Listen, because, oh, because we no longer need to fear the sting of death. It's already been dealt its own fatal blow. Paul says, therefore, therefore, brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. So how should believers respond to the news that Jesus is victorious over death and that he has promised that we will be victorious like him on the same level when he finally comes back? Two ways Paul gives us. The first one, Paul says, be steadfast and immovable. Steadfast and immovable. While others might get tossed around by every wind of frustration or setback they experience in this broken world, you already know how the game ends. You don't got to worry about it. You're good. The resurrection stabilizes you. The greatest enemy has already been dealt with. It's already been defeated. So what could you possibly have greater to fear? The game's already over before you're playing it. But there's a second response. It's not just that we're steadfast and immovable, because there's no passivity here either. Paul also says that we are always abounding in the work of the Lord. Why? Because nothing, and I mean nothing, that you do or we do to push people towards resurrection realities is ever, ever done in vain. Nothing. Whether we're encouraging Christians to order themselves for that eternity or we're imploring non-Christians to finally be reconciled forever to God. Paul says that our labor for the Lord is never in vain. And so our response this morning is not only to, to celebrate what God has done and is doing to provide for 10,000 years from now, but it's also to be about the work he's called us to today, right? As we call others to see and savor it too. We celebrate and we proclaim. And then we get ready to do the same thing tomorrow. We celebrate and we proclaim whoever you are, however God is calling you to respond to his word this morning. Let's respond together right now. Father, you're good to us. Thank you for the scriptures. Thank you for a massive chapter about the resurrection. Thank you for implication after implication after implication after implication. God, would you use what we've learned here the last several weeks to change us forever. Definitely change us today. May we chase after things that will still matter when you return. 
It will still matter long after you have removed sin and death forever. God, we pray that as a church family that we would chase after the right things. <coughs> Help us work well as we rest in what you've done. Father, for those in here who don't know you yet, would you make yourself known in this moment? Would you open eyes to see and ears to hear, hearts to know you? Would you call men and women into your good kingdom? And even though it seems upside down to us at first, would you turn us right side up? We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.